Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And now, battle ready with Father Dan Rehill. Good day. Welcome to Battle Ready. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Mary, recall the solemn moment when Jesus, your divine Son, dying on the cross, confided us to your maternal care. You are our mother. We desire ever to remain your devout children. Let us, therefore, feel the effects of your powerful intercession with Jesus Christ. Make your name again glorious in the shrine once renowned throughout England, by your visits, favors, and many miracles. Pray, O Mother of God, for the conversion of England, restoration of the sick, consolation of the afflicted, repentance of sinners, peace to the the departed. O Blessed Mary, Mother of God, Our Lady of Walsingham, intercede for us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That prayer to Our Lady of Walsingham in England um, is uh, today most uh, powerful as we remember Saints John Fisher and Thomas More, who were both martyred by King Henry VIII because they went against his um, divorce of his wife and remarriage to another woman. So I'm going to talk about that today. This is a hot button for me. I get so worked up when I think about this, it makes me so enraged that one man... One man, one arrogant, pig-headed, polluted, obese, fat pig of a man, King Henry VIII, could, with one sweep of his pen, eliminate Jesus in an entire country. Can you imagine? Yes, he did this. More damage than World War I and II combined was done to England by this man than any other person in the history of the world. Horrible ruler. Terrible person. Yes, I pray that he, his soul would be at least in purgatory, but what a disgraceful human being this was. Why, why, why do I get so angry? Well, <clears throat> you must know, England, uh, very far back in the past, you know, we know uh, St. Augustine of Canterbury in the uh, 500s uh, brought the, the, uh, England under the rule of the papacy in Rome, and England was a very devout country for a thousand years or so. And uh, then, with, with, with this one person, this one very proud, arrogant, lusty man, uh, all that was changed. So, before him, the Catholic Church in England played a central role uh, in the religious, the cultural, and the political fabric of England, you know, the most, what, some of the most magnificent churches were built there. Monasteries thrived. Uh, clergy had great influence in a positive way. Religious holidays were nationalized, and the Catholic Church worked with the state in union with Rome. So then, this man Henry the Eighth comes to power. He only was alive for. Uh, 38 years, so not not a very long life at all, but um, the damage was far and wide. He had six wives in his 38 years. He killed two of them, executed them, chopped their heads off. Uh, this is the kind of person that was ruling the country. 
And, uh, you know, that was just his wives. He also murdered his chancellor, uh, Thomas More, and the bishop, St. John Fisher. Now, John Fisher, I've spoken to you about him before. He was one of the, the two saints that I, I call living a holy life, uh, was given a holy death. When he was woken up in the morning of his execution, uh, they said the executioner, or the guard said to him, you know, you're going to be executed later on this morning. And he said, okay, then can I go back to sleep? I'm very tired. <laughs> Not many people would do that. But he'd lived a holy life. He had prayed. He had surrendered himself over to Jesus Christ. And he was ready to die. And so getting sleep for him was, was you know, just perfectly fine. Didn't need to do anything else. So these men, he um, chopped their heads off. He was fond of doing that. And then put their heads on, uh, the, the I think it was London Bridge or the Tower of London or something, publicly to display their heads so that nobody would cross this man again. I mean, such arrogance. Okay, so... <clears throat> uh, these two men, both are now saints, we celebrate today... Uh, were executed just about uh, 10 days or so apart. And this is what makes me so crazy about this. By by declaring himself the head of the Church uh, of England, so he broke away from the Catholic Church and starts his own church, of which he will sit in place of Jesus Christ. That's what makes me so mad and angry. Is hey, How dare he usurp Jesus's place as the head of the church. And uh, in doing so, he immediately usurped all of the churches and the church properties to himself. Uh, the Catholic Church was robbed, robbed of all that property, all that land, all those beautiful, beautiful, beautiful churches, the shrines, the monasteries, all of it, just stolen right out of the hands of Rome. I don't understand why every pope since then hasn't demanded for this property to be restored back to the church. Today of all days, the pope should come out and declare on television worldwide, this was a travesty committed against the Catholic Church. We demand our property back. We demand our churches back. We demand our monasteries back. And we demand reparation. This is the one case where reparation is necessary and valid. This is a true crime. But that's not the worst thing he did. Because these priests were no longer being ordained by valid bishops, these priests are no longer uh, able to confect the Eucharist. And so the, the Church of England does not have the Eucharist. The Church of England doesn't have a valid confession and the sacrament of reconciliation. The people that were robbed of the sacraments, can you imagine... And everybody knows it, but nobody really talks about it. Why isn't the Holy Father talking about this today? Why isn't he demanding reparation? Why isn't he demanding the church be restored? The Church of England uh, suppress itself. The king has the power to do that. King Charles, I would call up Charles. I mean, Charlie, you need to suppress the Church of England and hand it back over to the one holy Catholic church, which is the church that founded by Jesus Christ himself. Uh, right away. 
this is could be your legacy that you restored the Church of England back to the one true Catholic Church. But no, he's not going to do that. I've heard rumors he's looking into uh, Muslim, the Muslim religion, and who knows what they're thinking over there. But this is what was so bad about the whole deal. The poor people of England were just robbed of Jesus Christ and the Blessed Sacrament, of the sacraments of confession, all of it. And it just seems to be nobody cares. Nobody does anything. The Queen of England, when she died, I thought, the poor woman, I hope she's not in hell. She had, how long did she reign? My gosh, it must have been, I think it was 60 years or so. She had ample time to do this, to restore those churches back to the one true church, and she didn't do it. She remained the head of the church. I'll tell you, when Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle, he wasn't kidding. Because what happens to people in great power and great money is, not everybody, but oftentimes, they become so swelled with pride and arrogance that they can't see what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. They just can't see it anymore. And they just serve at the pleasure of themselves. And that's what's going on. You know, nobody needs a king of England anymore. I don't know what that's all about. If I lived in England, I would be storming the palace saying, enough, hand back our money. We're, we're tired of giving you money so you can just prance around in your in your capes and crowns. It's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. So that's my rant for the day. Enough about these poor people. Um, pray, pray hard for the people of England to be restored back to the one true church. And certainly there are Catholic churches there today. Gradually over time, new churches were established, but uh, the Church of England's a big church, and they're all being led astray from the one true church. So I have pity on them, Lord. Have mercy. Let's go back to the art of intercessory prayer. This is a, a great... Uh, and wonderful thing. So, you know, a day like today, you could lift up England, and you could say, Lord, show us how to pray for the country of England, for the, the Church of England, that false church that um, was placed um, over your church in that country. And you, you, I'm sure the Lord would pray for the conversion of those who are supporting such a thing. Uh, we know for sure that he does want uh, his son Jesus Christ to be loved, honored, and adored. And you can't do that uh, if he's no longer the head of, of a church, right? If he's not the head of a church, who he's not the one uh, that you're paying homage to. And I'm sure there's people in the, Anglic in the Anglican and the Church of England that would say, oh, that's not true. We, we love Jesus. Well, how much do you love him? If you really loved him, you'd go where he, he truly and substantially exists, and that would be in the Catholic Church. So, I mean, that argument gets shut down pretty quick. But this is something you can do. So, what are the traits of the intercessor? Well, the traits of the intercessor, first and foremost, is it's a person who loves very much. And love, true love, is wanting everyone to get to heaven. And so I'm not going to be afraid of challenging things that are false, things that are contrary to the gospel, things that go against Jesus Christ and his church. You simply cannot be a coward. You can't be. You must speak out. 
because we're talking about souls. We're talking about getting people to heaven. You can't affirm somebody in their mortal sin and think you're helping them. It simply is a lie. Now, you may, it may make life easier in getting along with them, in affirming them in their sinfulness, but it doesn't help them get to heaven. In fact, it might prevent them from getting... If everybody thinks everything's fine, if you have uh, two men living together as husband and wife, and everyone's affirming them in their wonderful relationship, in their fabulous lifestyle, they might think their life is good. Everything's good. Everyone, no one's giving me a hard time. Everyone thinks our relationship's wonderful. No one is uh, telling me any different. Well, they're in for a rude awakening when they when they leave this life and they find out that that whole relationship was based on um, sin because you took something that was meant for good, bringing life into the world, and you perversely distorted it for your own pleasure uh, in a way that was never meant to be. So, and this goes with anything, you know, any any great sin, any grave matter. You can't affirm people in, in grave matters of sin and expect you're helping them. You're not helping them. So when I say it's a person who loves much, it's you love God first and foremost above everything else. And if you do that, you will speak truth to power, just like St. Thomas More, just like St. John Fisher did. They weren't afraid to die for what they believed in. Just like St. John the Baptist, it's almost the same thing. He spoke to Herod, about his adulterous relationship with his brother's uh, wife. And that got him beheaded. But see, he loved enough to point out the truth to Herod in hopes that Herod would repent, in hopes that Herod would, would uh, change his mind about the whole situation and say, you know what, you're right, it's a terrible idea, I can't do this. That's when you love with a heart like God's, Right? You're not afraid to challenge what is wrong. You're not afraid to speak truth to power. That's when you love the most. Um, love is not timid, right? Love is courageous. True love is courageous because you're willing to die for the truth. And who is the truth? Jesus Christ is the truth. He said it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. So truth incarnate is Jesus. So we must stand up for truth. We're living in a day and age when truth is just spouted out of the mouths of liars as something that is completely contrary to the truth. You know, truth is that which, with which is in accord with reality. Truth is that which is in accord with reality. So if I'm looking out the window and I see pine trees across the parking lot, I say, oh, those are, those are beautiful green pine trees. That's true. They're green. But if I say those are beautiful red pine trees, that's not true. Maybe I have on glasses that are tinting them that may appear to be red, but they're not red. So that, you know, it's like you can't call something just the way you perceive it to be a truth. It's actually that which is in accord with reality. Something many people today fail to realize. Secondly, the intercessor is a person who is in union with God, in union with him. God is always calling us to come into his embrace. He's, he's the one who initiates prayer. 
um, you could say God initiates everything. He's the source of everything. And he's the one who gives you the call to be an intercessor. We don't take it on, on our own. We're called to do this. And, and I think he's calling anyone who has a heart to love people, truly love people, to be an intercessor. Uh, it's not that you will find intercessors in prayer between five in the morning and five at night. It's not like, It's not that you're just going to be tucked away in a monastery and just be praying all day hidden. Certainly that could be, you know, for the life of a monk, sure. But for most people, it's it's a daily living their life in union with God as you walk through this world. And as you see things through God's perspective, things are drawn to your eye that you need to pray for. I know somebody this happens to all day long. God bless her. For me, that would be such a distraction to trying to get everything done that I'm trying to do. I'm not oblivious to what's around me, but I don't see everything the way some people would see every little finite detail in a situation. That is a gift in itself, but it's not one I have, and I'm I'm actually happy I don't have it. Um, sometimes I just need to tunnel vision through on what I'm focused on. But truly, and I do see the things God wants me to see, I believe anyway. So you're seeing something in a moment, and you suddenly uh, understand. Uh, you can be looking around a room, and you spot somebody, and you realize that person is suffering in some way. I can tell by their by their face, the emotion in their in their eyes. There's something that's hurting them, and, and they need prayer. Uh, you'll spot it because God will point it out to you. Now, a hundred people could be watching the same thing at the same time, and maybe only two of them have their heart pierced for that particular situation. You take the example of watching the evening news. It's all uh, tragedy and, and drama. The, the news rarely puts anything on that's uh, joyful and happy and that we can applaud. It's almost always uh, violence and death and murder and uh, tragedy, right? And the problem is you can become numb to that stuff if you just watch it all day long. It's like watching a movie. It's like you went to the cinema and you're watching a movie like the Titanic on a film and it's not affecting you because it's a movie, even though that actually happened. Uh, the, 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 the events that happen around the world, that we have a war happening in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, there's conflict all over our own country, major conflict. Um, Various shootings and murders every day. Chicago is just the hotbed of, of shootings and murders. And you watch it day in and day out, and you start to become numb to the whole mess of it. And and it, it's almost like going to the cinema and watching a movie. It doesn't seem to affect you anymore. That's not a good thing. When we see these things, we should be our heart should be moved to pray uh, for the people afflicted and the people who are suffering, the people who've been hurt. But it's very difficult when it's just 24-7 over and over and over on a, on a reel, just playing over and over and over. However, back to my original point. I, dig, I digressed there. A hundred people look at a situation, and uh, let's say something happens, uh, a car crash on the highway. Well, 95% of the people are perhaps horrified at seeing the cars burning and bodies being dragged out, um, and, and literally, maybe even in shock from seeing such a tragedy occur right before their eyes. 
But a few of those people will immediately go into prayer. Hopefully more than a few, but the reality is it's probably a few. Every, you know what most people are going to do? They're going to pull out their phones and start recording it. And they're going to live stream it across Twitter and Instagram. Look at the accident I saw today. That's how, how numb we've become to human suffering. But the true intercessor will immediately, immediately, I mean, uh, figuratively drop to their knees. If you're driving, you can't do that. But immediately will go into prayer and say, oh, Lord. I do this whenever I hear sirens, even if I can't see the, the fire trucks or the ambulance. I say, oh, Lord, send your mighty angels to assist and protect the responders and the victims in this, crime, in this uh, accident or this crime scene. Immediately send your angels to help. Uh, and then send your humans that can help, too. Uh, whoever they may be, the fire, the police, uh, first responders, whatever. And if I can help, you know, let me send me. If, if I'm if I'm on a highway, and I see an accident that looks pretty bad, uh, I I do stop and try to assist and say, is anybody here in need of uh, the sacraments? That used to be very um, well regarded when I was in seminary 20 years ago. I was with the priest in the car with him when this happened, and we went to to the accident, and the police kind of escorted us up to see how we could help. I don't know if that would happen today. I think the police would be like, get, a, get away, you're, you're causing uh, a problem. You're, you're interfering with the scene. I don't know. I hope not, but we still try. We do the best we can. Uh, we can certainly pray from a distance, but to, uh, to anoint somebody or even baptize somebody, I need to be with the person. So we do the best we can. But in any way, the, the intercessors in union with God. So we're we're following His lead uh, on how to pray and for who to pray. God will point out the people to you. He will show you the way, and then you ask Him how to pray, and He'll give you the way He wants to pray. Uh, if you were to uh, recall from Revelation, when it's speaking, Revelation 12 is the chapter that's speaking primarily about Our Lady. Uh, and her battle with the devil. And in there it says that uh, the woman was given the wings of a gigantic eagle so that she could fly off to her place in the desert. There's a lot of language there that um, has great symbolic meaning. So right away when we see the wings of a gigantic eagle, the eagle always has the heavenly perspective. The eagle flies up high in the sky. Uh, John is uh, the symbol of an eagle of the four gospel writers. He's the contemplative. He has the eagle's view, the heaven's advantage of looking down on the situation. So that's what that speaks to, to me and to many people. I've heard this from many theologians. And she could fly off to her place in the desert. The desert is a place uh, of, um, you could say, retreat. It's a place to retreat to uh, go off and commune with God. This is where she found safety in this scripture in Revelation 12, 14. So it's a very contemplative spirituality to be an intercessor. And we are often taken by God off to a place in the desert every day to ponder the things of God and to intercede in the way he's calling us to pray. This is what we do. Just, I believe it was just Yesterday or the day before, we heard in the Gospel from Matthew, uh, maybe it was today even, I, I'm losing my mind, 
Whenever you pray, go to, it was today, go to your room, close your door, and pray to your Father in private. So what that means is to shut out your other thoughts, to shut out the things that would be a distraction, to close that all out of your mind and heart and focus on what God is speaking to you. So you're going to go into that inner solitude and pray to your Heavenly Father in secret. And it's in that inner solitude, in that inner silence, it's our interior desert, um, it's the promised land within us. This is where God lives. This is where God dwells in our heart and soul. This is where God will speak to you when you go to that place. So, another scripture to look at is John fourteen three. I am indeed going to prepare a place for you. Well, most of us think of heaven when we hear that, but he's also preparing the, a place in your own heart where he's dwelling where you can go to at any moment. You can be imprisoned, like John Fisher or St. Thomas More, and still go to that interior place that God has prepared in your soul to meet him one-on-one. Isn't that a great gift, that we don't have to get in a car to go meet God? We can meet him interiorly uh, as baptized children of God. What a great gift we have in that. So this is... uh, critical for anyone who's called to this ministry of intercession, this special place uh, in our heart where we go to to commune with God. There's also a great scripture in Hosea 2.16. The leaf blower man is here, and he's right outside my window. I hope you cannot hear that. Uh, I will allure her. I will lure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak to her heart. See, God is is the great initiator of uh, of meeting us, and we are beloved to Him. And it's so important for us to go to this place within our own souls where we can commune with God and allow ourselves to be lured into the desert where He speaks to our, our hearts and souls. And I would add, this is a, a, a place where we can have great intimacy with God. Um, Intimacy, if you say it slowly, into me see. You know, I'm warping the pronunciation a little bit. But really, that's what it is. It's like you're you're bearing your heart and soul open for God to see everything about you. He knows everything about you anyway. But when you open up yourself to God, you're saying to him, I trust you. I surrender to you. I invite you into all aspects of my life. Nothing could be more pleasing to God. Because... Isn't that what you would want from a child? When your child completely trusts you and loves you and, and, and can speak to you completely about everything, holding nothing back, um, this is what God wants from us. So this is uh, part of being in union with God. You know, when Jesus talks about um, being the good shepherd, he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And know means to experience. You know, I I know God by my experience with him, my relationship with him. I understand his love for me, although not completely, because we can never fathom the depths of God's love for us in this life. It will be in the next when we come to really understand it. Uh, You have to experience it. I've said to people before, you know, one of my favorite things in the world is passion fruit creme brulee. And for somebody who's never had it, or for that matter, never had a passion fruit, you can't explain what a passion fruit tastes like until you taste it. 
It's just not describable. You could say it's tart and wonderful, that's true, but it doesn't completely in any way capture the fullness of what that tastes like. I, uh, not too long ago, had uh, went to somebody's home for dinner. They have a whole slew of little children. I said, I'll bring dessert. And I, I just felt like making it. So I brought the creme brulee, the passion fruit creme brulee. Now, the parents had never had it. The kids have never had it. So the parents have it, and they just go over the moon. It's so wonderful. And so <laughs> the kids the kids begin tasting it. And they really loved it, but I said, what does it taste like? And they, they couldn't describe it. It's indescribable. You simply cannot describe what there's really no words for, right? To some degree, this is the relationship with God. It's it's off the charts indescribable when we come to really start experiencing his love and to coming to know how much he loves us. It's off the charts indescribable because it it so far outshadows and, and outweighs any human relationship with another here that you really can't describe it. To say he's the perfect father and mother combined, true, but pales in comparison because he's so much greater. And he has so much more love. He has so much more to give. He has so much more to reveal. I mean, all of it. It's just such a big, giant package of divine goodness that it's impossible to compare it to anything else. This is the kind of knowledge of God I'm speaking about, this experience of him. When you start to experience how good he is and how he's the kindest, Jesus is the kindest person I've ever met and will ever meet, um, you just come to, to expect. I wake up every morning expecting to experience this great love he has. Uh, I have gone on way more than I should. I just looked at the clock. Uh, So we're going to have to stop there. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is Father Dan signing off.